right to announce the end of the world or to change the minds of those who are convinced that the world as we have known it can be saved or made sustainable. I write for anyone who has found themselves, as I have, needing to make sense of what is ending, how we can talk about it, and what tasks are worth taking on in whatever time it turns out that we have. Something is coming over the horizon, a humbling from which none of us will be spared, that will not be managed or controlled, but will leave us changed. Before it is over, I suspect, we will need to learn again what it means to take seriously things that are larger or smaller than were allowed to be real or significant according to the scales and systems of modernity. We will need to dance again with the rhythms of cosmology, to be carried by the kind of stories and images in whose company, as the mythographer Martin Shaw would say, a universe becomes a cosmos. We will need to remember that we are not alone and never were, that we are part of a world of many worlds, only some of which are human. And we will need to rediscover that any world worth living for centres not on the vast systems we built to secure the future, but on those encounters that are proportioned to the kind of creatures we are, the places where we meet, the acts of friendship and the acts of hospitality in which we offer shelter and kindness to the stranger at the door. In this way, even now, there may be time to find our place within the vastly larger and older story of which we always were a part. You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with me, Dan Burgess. The story of Spaceship Earth is simple. We live on a life-giving rock called Earth, hurtling through space. Like a spaceship, we have a finite amount of supplies with an intelligent operating system called nature, which keeps everything replenished as long as we all respect it and participate wisely. So a deep relationship with this mysterious system, along with spontaneous cooperation between humans and all life, is essential to keep us thriving and the spaceship flying. In this podcast, I'm in conversation with folk involved in regenerating life, shifting consciousness and reimagining how we can live more beautifully and peacefully. I talk with artists, writers, activists, designers, adventurers, healers, farmers, creative mavericks and more. Their stories invite us to participate in the co-creation of life-sustaining cultures. In service to life, becoming crew on Spaceship Earth. Greetings Earthling, Uh, welcome to the podcast. This is Dan, Uh, thanks for tuning in, much appreciation. There's a lot out there uh, vying for our attention, so it means a lot that you've decided to tune in this podcast and in this episode in particular um so i'm in conversation with dougald hein now dougald is a co-founder of the dark mountain project co-host of the great humbling podcast with ed gillespie co-founder of a school called home in sweden where he lives with his partner and son and author of new book at work in the ruins which is the focus of this conversation. Now, I first came across Dougald 
uh, in about 2010, I think, um, via the Dark Mountain Manifesto, which, if you haven't read, is well worth a read. And uh, I think you can find that online. Uh, But you can also, I think, uh, buy it in a little booklet, which is what I have, um, which is, uh, yeah, called Uncivilization, the Dark Mountain Manifesto. Anyway, Dougald is someone who's thinking, writing and speaking I really appreciate. Um, There's courage, humility and insight about the way he speaks, um, particularly to the context that we're living in, which personally I find quite rare to find in this culture of certainty. Um, And so when I saw he had a book coming out and a tour, uh, I reached out and managed to pull him off his tour train for a a shorter-than-usual episode. Um, I think At Work in the Ruins is a book where Dougald is opening up Uh, vital, urgent spaces for different types of questions, conversations um, and invitations to be considered and explored as we face into the unravelling mystery of these challenging times we are living through. Um, And there are questions which the command and control logic of modernity of our modern systems the knowledge of calculus and all that can be measured are not able to ask questions that the this this these bigger systems are not able to ask and that is hugely problematic and dangerously problematic when it is that dominant logic uh, which is how we continue to make sense of Uh, respond and plan uh, to the enormity of uh, climate change, ecological breakdown and every other intersectional crisis coming down the line. And so, yeah, this book weaves together many different voices, ideas, perspectives, stories that Dougald has been collecting and carrying over the years. And in that sense, To me, it's a book of wisdom for these times, times which can often feel full of cleverness, which no longer makes much sense. That's how I see it. So in the intro to this episode, you heard Dougald reading an excerpt from the introduction uh, of At Work in the Ruins. And his reference to endings is very much what we riffed on in this conversation and some of the things we might begin to question, um, hold lightly and let go of as the story of modernity and the multitude of stories weaved within it come to an end. And these are stories that have been shaped through a deeply ingrained 500-year-old cultural narrative of separation from nature, from each other, 
and ways of seeing and knowing the world and being in relationship with life that are extractive, exploitative, manipulative, violent and binary, among many other things. And these are things that we're beginning, I feel, to deeply understand through the pain and suffering that we're all experiencing in some way, I believe. Um, And we are beginning to understand these things are not part of what it means to be fully human. And that even now the leading edge of, of science tells us are not true to how life really operates. But endings are often really difficult things for modern humans. Most of us try to avoid them in any way we can. But what if new beginnings that are able to guide us towards cultivating life-sustaining cultures requires intentional work with endings? My own personal experience of endings is that as painful and uncomfortable and disorienting as they can be at times, there is also incredible connection and creative possibility as we cross the threshold um, of vulnerability and learning to let go. I believe that as Dougald articulates so well in uh, this conversation and in his book, that the ways we speak to endings, the ways we notice them and attend to them, to the decaying and dying stories, beliefs, behaviours, ideas, structures, systems and ways of knowing the world that no longer make sense, that are dividing us and destroying life. Those ways are essential if we are to birth new possibilities and grow life-sustaining communities and cultures in the places we call home. What if this essential composting practice is where we might discover all kinds of nutrients for connection, care, community and possibility that we take forward into new beginnings for building good ruins, as Dougald puts it. And this in itself is an important practice that we're working with in the Becoming Crew Inquiry. So I really recommend getting hold of a copy of At Work in the Ruins. Uh, This is episode 64 of the Spaceship Earth podcast with Dougald Hine. Enjoy. You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with my dad, Dan Bird. Dougald, welcome to the Spaceship Earth podcast. Hello, it's good to be on board. <laughs> I feel like uh, I feel like I sort of sneakily intercepted your tour, um, and we sort of pull, pull, got you off the train in Bristol and abducted me onto the spaceship. <laughs> yeah, exactly, on your way to uh, on your way to Devon. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I'll, I'll, it will be a short trip. I will let you back back out. Jolly good. Um, so, thank you for for uh, f- for making this happen. It's um, it's. Um, you know the the book is out, and I said I saw you post uh, your. You, I think you were literally just about to get on a bus in Sweden, um, 
and I thought, and I've just been about to go in, you know, start recording a whole new season. I thought maybe, maybe we can get a conversation in. So, um, first of all, I'm pleased that's happened. <laughs> um, and also just to say, yeah, before we kick in, you know, thank you for this book. It's, um, I, I've, I've sort of read it rapidly this week and, um, I've been scribbling a lot, which for me is always like, there's something, something going on. And, um, yeah, I think it's a real, it's a real gift for these times. There's something, um, for me anyway, reading it, it feels like there was a lot of reflection for you, a lot of sort of looking, looking back in many ways. Um, and a lot of, there's a lot of weaving, let's say in this book of, um, you know, some names, some ideas, some stories I'm familiar with and many I'm not and people, um, and, that feels that feels quite special to sort of have these different perspectives and ideas being kind of pulled together um and actually this idea of sort of i guess even at work in the ruins for me i was thinking that felt familiar that felt like a place that i <laughs> I, feel, I feel like i've been I've, I've been in for it for some time and that felt but also many of the voices at least i see that you've, you've brought into this book i sort of get a sense that many of them have been working in the ruins for a long time with the sort of impacts that they were never really a part of, you know, that they never really benefited from, the sort of impacts of modernity. There seems to be many voices that you've pulled on who've been sort of, yeah, in some ways, kind of in the ruins, if you like, for a long time um, and may be able to see what's been going on with more clarity. Um, so, yeah, so so thank you for that. I called it, I think I, I was tra on the train, I was thinking, it feels like I would describe this as a, a book of wisdom in a culture of cleverness that no longer makes much sense. That's that's how I would put it. I love that. That's <laughs> a great line. I'm going to be quoting you on that. <laughs> it's so heartening to see the book going out into the world and to be hearing back from people who've been reading it and, and sitting with it. Because it took me a long time to write this book. I mean, I'm... I'm 45. I have been telling people that I'm writing a book since I was about 15. And I think part of what took me so long was it took me this long to stop trying to be clever. And, you know, if there's wisdom in this book, then a lot of it is other people's wisdom. And I've just been lucky that I have found myself in conversation with and learning from an extraordinary range of people. And, um, I guess a book like this is the fruit of many conversations and a fruit should have seeds in it. And so I hope that what the book is doing is not, you know, not giving anyone a definitive set of answers, not containing things where everyone's going to agree with everything that's in it, but just seeding a whole lot more conversations that will in turn be fruitful. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's definitely, that definitely comes through. And I wanted to I sort of start, I guess, with this, this idea which you speak of of like I think I sort of put it down as like you know when the future doesn't work anymore mm. um and you know I was trying to sort of it, it sort of struck me a lot and I see it it's something that I have been feeling a lot over the years myself it's something I see increasingly with teenage children that they're seeing it like they're speaking you know maybe not articulating in that way but there's a confusion that they're sensing and you know 
I also picked up in um, Hospicing Modernity, which obviously is a is a is a is a big th- influence in this book, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and we and we can speak to that in a bit. But there's that um, uh, there's that phrase Vanessa uses: "We are we are living off expire expired or expiring stories." Um, mm. And I wonder whether we could just speak a little bit about that because that feels fundamental to me when when as a culture or as cultures or societies when we can't when we sort of know start to know that the future that we're being sort of told to sort of believe in is just feels almost like a it's an absurdity in some ways yeah well I'm thinking as you say that of someone whose work I discovered very late in the day when I'd nearly finished writing this book There's an Italian philosopher called Federico Campagna. And what I heard from him that resonated so deeply with what I was already trying to say in the book is he says, sometimes you're born into the end of a world. This is a thing that happens. Worlds have ended before. How do you know that you were born into the ending of the world that you were born into. Well, the symptom of it is that the future no longer works because the future in the ordinary sense of it, you know, when politicians stand up and talk about the future and try and inspire us and uh, appeal to our capacity for collective hope, that future is a kind of line extending from the recent past through the present to a trajectory that we're invited to believe in. And if you're, as Vanessa says, you know, if you're in a place, if you're born into a place where the story is expired or expiring, you know, if you're at the end of a world, then you're at the end of the arc of story through which that world makes sense. And when people try to appeal to the future, it doesn't sound very convincing anymore. And I think that we can see this in the, the strange, you know, morbid symptoms, if you like, of politics in recent times, you know, especially in the last 10 years. And you think back to the Brexit vote and the election of Donald Trump. And Anthony Barnett, who I quote in the book, says, you know, those two slogans, make America great again and take back control. What are the most important words in their slogans? It's back. And again, it's this potency that the past has compared to the future, which feels exhausted. And then you get people who want to try and say, well, that's a mistake. Uh, We need to reboot the future. We need to get it working again. But if Campania's analysis is right, if we are, in fact, living at the end of the world that we were born into, then you can't just get the future working again in any ordinary sense. You need other moves, weirder moves. And one of the things he says is, you know, so what what do you do if that's your discernment of the, if that's your reading of the signs of the times? Well, you can stop trying to make sense according to the logic of the world that is ending. And you can start doing whatever it is you're up to with an eye to creating good ruins. Because the world that is ending is not going to just disappear and vanish without a trace. And we know that it's going to leave toxic traces that last tens of thousands of years for those who come after us. But it's also going to leave all sorts of other remains which will be picked up and used and carried forward in ways, many of which we can't imagine just now. 
just to be thinking about you know the work that's worth doing more in terms of making good ruins rather than trying to get the future working again as some kind of logical continuation of or making sustainable of the the world as we know it that to me is oh, part of what's called for when we find ourselves uh, with stories that no longer make sense as you say through the book and you know what you're speaking to because there's a sense that this is idea of endings and there's a lot for me that came through the book around i mean there's there's endings there's there's thresholds there's then vulnerabilities and there's death which again for me these are sort of themes that really sort of came through for me but also themes that i'm feeling quite yeah very sort of alive for me in the in in what i'm you know on my own sort of muddling <laughs> through these ruins at the moment but there's a sense of what I'm really interested in is because, um, and there's obviously a lot in all of that, but there is a letting go that's kind of required, I feel, a sort of like a, you know, a letting go. And maybe that's part of this, you know, this, these stories, these ideas, these imaginings that we might have about the future. There's a, there's a letting go, there's an ending. Um, and my experience in, in the sort of, the Western culture that I've grown up in um, is with really terrible endings <laughs> and really fearful of them. Um, we are, aren't we? And and that vulnerability and and all and and so I guess that the edge I'm really interested in because what I've also experienced though is that when we allow ourselves to sort of to not know and to be vulnerable and to sort of let go of that holding on to the certainty, quite extraordinary things can happen. So I was sort of interested in this tension you know yeah i like the way you put that yeah the very ending of the dark mountain manifesto which is the thing that paul kingsnorth and i wrote nearly 15 years ago now that was kind of what set me on the path to a lot of the work that i've been doing in the closing lines of the manifesto we said the end of the world as we know it is not the end of the world full stop together we will find the hope beyond hope, the paths that lead into the unknown world that lies ahead. And so that distinction that, yes, something is ending, the world as we've known it around here lately is coming to an end and will not be made sustainable. But that's not the end of the story, that you know, endings make space for things. I was talking about this with um, the audience at the event in Newcastle a couple of nights ago, and uh, we're talking about how when a great tree dies in a forest, it gives back, it releases all of these resources that have been bound up in it, which are then able to contribute to the life of what comes after it. And in the best case scenarios, part of what Vanessa calls hospicing modernity is going to involve releasing the resources that have been tied up in the, the structures of modernity and coloniality and um, capitalism and uh, patriarchy. And you can, I'm sure your listeners can add to <laughs> that list or you know, name it in different ways from different angles that bring different parts of this into view. But it seems to me that that's part of the, the living in a time of endings. And yes, modernity has been pretty poor at endings, partly because you know, it's 
there's never been human cultures that have been so avoidant of death. Stephen Jenkinson talks about this. He says North America has a death phobic mm. culture. But another symptom of that difficulty with endings is we're not good at ending things well. You know, things end by crashing and burning rather than care being given. I love the idea which the Quakers talk about of putting as much care and attention into bringing something to a close as you put into the beginning of it. I think they call it the ministry of laying down. And I've some of the most satisfying experiences in my working life have involved the point when I was leaving an organisation that I created and I had enough energy to be able to do that carefully and gently and slowly over time, working with the people who were going to be carrying it forward when I was no longer around. And I think all of those experiences feed into this sense of what, what the hospicing work in Vanessa's language might be. Yeah, and there's, um, <clears throat> you know, you talked about the, you know, exactly what can come through these, come through these endings. And I, I have seemed like, yeah, like the nutrients almost that are in these structures and systems and the people that have been part of them. And because we, it's really, you know, we can look at these things in different ways and we can either look at them as like, oh, they're damaging and destroying. And, you know, or we can, we can have that humility to step back and say, well, you know what they've achieved or what what's happened through these things but also yeah and and then there's a sort of a i guess a humility and a sort of respect in the way that we let go of them and also what can come through those processes but it's be, the thing is is time though isn't it because i was struck again by the there was another line actually in 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 the in the um which actually made me think when you were speaking about your um this was an idea out of the hospicing uh, modernity book that modernity is faster than thought. And mm. uh, it struck me when you were, there's a piece in the book, I think you were talking about where you, I think you'd been at your in-laws place, what, looking at the stars and you talked about your son coming out somehow randomly getting to pour, was it pour, was pause patrol or something? <laughs> but this idea that, you know, where does this stuff come from? We're, we're, <laughs> we're watching, yeah, this is lovely to be reminded of this. It must have been, in the early days of 2020 uh, and we see on the news that there's going to be a meteor shower that night and so we go outside and as soon as we get out we see this one meteor shoot off across the sky so then we like we draw the the sunbeds out from their conservatory and we've got loads of blankets and duvets because this is Sweden in January and we're lying there looking up at the sky and Alfie's asking me he wants he wants to know the names of the constellations and i'm pointing them out and then he says so how does it work when you wish on a a shooting star does uh, does the thing that you wish for does it just pop up out of the ground and he's five at this point and uh uh he says because i'm gonna wish for a poor patrol fire engine <laughs> and uh then i think actually you know we have been living in this way where our whole way of life is based on things that just pop up out of the ground, both in the sense of fossil fuels and in the sense that the circumstances of consumption are so far removed from the circumstances of production that we do not have to see the cost of our way of living very often. Yeah, it's and, and, and it's is this, say this everything moves so fast and without the ability to sort of make any of these connections, but also which is for me this sort of the exhaustion that i have experienced of is of you know 
trying to sort of see, you know, to step back from these systems and look at what's going on. But it's also a challenge for this stepping stepping into this time with how to how do we let go? Because again, all these all these processes of composting or hospicing or there's a sort of there's a quality of attention required that is do you know what I mean that doesn't fit with the the pace of modernity that is messy that is sort of that takes time um yeah I'm thinking of my friend Bayo Kamalafe and this thing that he says very often the situation is urgent we need to slow down and just this invitation to step out of the rhythm and the tempo and the jagged repetitive beats of modernity. And, uh, and I think about, you know, right at the end of the book, I talk about the, um, the moment where Extinction Rebellion first came onto the streets of London and this strange symmetry that... <laughs> Spaceship, something's going on with it. Yeah, this, uh, we, 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 need, we need an engineer on this spaceship. Uh, so the day that Extinction Rebellion first appeared on the streets of London, that Saturday in November 2018, it was, in Paris was the first of the Gilets Jaunes protests. And on the surface, you could see these as kind of opposites because the Gilets Jaunes starts with... Macron wanting to put up the price of petrol with a green tax and people protesting against it. But really, that's just the straw that breaks the back of lots of people who are already living in the precarity that is the reality for many people in all of our societies these days. Um, But what struck me was this kind of on both sides of the the Atlantic, on both sides of the channel, you had these fluorescent colours of the flags of XR and the yellow vests in Paris. And you had... This move of, you know, blocking the traffic, whether it was at the roundabouts or on the bridges, bringing the movement of business as usual to a halt to go, hang on a minute, we need to stop going on at this pace and start talking about how, you know, unsustainable it all is, how we're, um, you know, struggling to make life work as it is. And somehow, a lot of the ways that we talk about climate change risk encouraging that frantic, frenetic, modern, um, accelerating tempo, um, rather than making those sort of stranger moves that that Bio is calling for. So, you know, how often have I heard myself or my friends say, you know, we've we've got x number of years left what is it now seven years uh, and this kind of it everything hangs on what our generation does in the next handful of years and and i gradually over the years of talking about climate change i began to grow suspicious of that firstly because i think that if that message really lands and you were talking earlier about the young people and the teenagers and the the sense of the lack of future You know, it puts an impossible weight on our shoulders, on their shoulders to say it's all about what we do now in the next seven years. It's going to break people. It's going to paralyze people to speak that way. Secondly, I don't trust it because modernity all along has been about telling this story about just how important we now are 
because everything that has ever happened in human and biological history has been leading up to our generation. And so in a weird way, that that kind of temporality of speaking about climate change, it it reproduces a dark version, a sort of shadow version of what has more often been a kind of heroic cheerleading rhetoric of modernity. And so I was stuck with that for a while. Like I knew in my gut that there was something astray with that way of speaking, which isn't to say that I don't recognize the urgency and the depth of the trouble we're in and how many things we need to do or rather stop doing soon. But then I heard it was um, it was the British writer Sarah Thomas, uh, who's a wonderful writer. She she told me a story that she had heard from Tyson Junkerporter, who is an Australian Aboriginal thinker and scholar and maker and activist, and and he was talking about trees again, and he said, you know, if we're really lucky, then we're somewhere in the early going of an undertaking, an unfolding that's going to take, let's say, a thousand years. Because that's how long it will take for there to be a world of old growth forests again. Because that's how long it takes for the mother trees to grow. And what I hear in that is the invitation to be part of something humbler, where we still have our part to play now. And maybe this is your crew metaphor, that we need to stop acting like passengers and start being participants in the ongoingness of the life of this earth that we are in and a part of. And we can contribute to that now, knowing that we won't live to see the end of the story in as much as it even makes sense to talk about it being a story with an end. So when Vanessa talks about hospicing modernity, she says, yes, we're in this moment of exhausted stories. But alongside the hospicing work, there's also the work of assisting with the birth of something that's new, as yet unknown, possibly, but not necessarily, wiser. And trying not to smother that with projections of our ideas of what it ought to be or who ought to be the heroes who are making it happen. We live on a life-giving rock called Earth, hurtling through space. How bonkers is that? You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast. Gosh, yeah, <clears throat> it's beautiful. There's, um, it's making me, it's, uh, you know, I was just thinking of, because I see this, um, I've often with, with, my, with my older kids, you know, you know, trying to help them make sense of what is going on. And I and I try and say, look, you know, this is really it's really difficult to grasp. But like, imagine, you know, we're part of a of a of a journey that's ongoing, <laughs> and you've been born in this time where everything that we thought was solid <laughs> isn't. <laughs> and you know, and so how do you hold these 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 things that you have been told are solid and certain lightly? And how do you, you know, be confident enough to know that actually it's you know all the questions that you have are valid are important you know and it was making me think you know with 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 the with the hospicing modernity work because she comes from an education background it's that's almost like right. yeah. that's the project for, for for education is it not right now it's mm. like because allowing allowing our young people to actually you know 
sort of participate in that process feels just yeah it just feels like <laughs> that's got to be a place to go um because i think the book for me a lot of what you're speaking to at least again my take out is like what is knowledge like what is who who owns knowledge like so much of the the modernity project and i think that's where you're you know the, the your your exploration of climate science and and science during the pandemic and this way that we this knowledge that i think you use this phrase it's sort of knowledge it's not you're not denying the science but it's like this arm's length science i think you called it and then you sort of talk a lot about you know knowledge versus knowing and i think there was this there was this bit in it i think this was right you said that you know the starting point of knowledge surely is the experience of knowing and then there's this section where you go into you know the idea of where we people turn off on climate change where they sort of stop you know they they see they feel the sort of the doomness of it all or the impossibility but it's almost like this idea of not wanting to know was connected to not knowing how to know i think i think that was the phrase but this whole yeah. idea of 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 knowledge and how you know so much of these systems and structures and beliefs that are part of this modern life are based on a knowledge which is not known by most of you know we don't know that we don't we've never really experienced it <laughs> i don't know if that makes sense but yeah, to me this is a really big part of this work of how we know the world it gets into quite um you know mysterious territory quite quickly when we start trying to speak about this doesn't it um i what i what i'm saying about knowledge and knowing it partly comes out of these dialogues over the years with climate scientists and you know with them expressing the limits of their you know, climate science is asked to do all the work of knowing this thing we call climate change and it's understandable because you know climate change itself is a scientific construct it's a description that is offered to us through the work of science to explain and make sense of the processes at work that are manifesting in all sorts of ways in changes in the living world and so any conversation about climate change is going to start inside this space of science and the word science literally means what is known. You know, that's it comes from the Latin and that's the the name that we give to this set of practices. And yet, I say in the book, climate change asks us questions that climate science cannot answer. And the question that I home in on is how did we find ourselves in this trouble? Are we here as a result of a piece of bad luck with the atmospheric chemistry that it turns out seven generations down the line that the fossil fuels on which we built industrial societies were spewing out emissions which destabilize the relatively benign climate conditions under which almost everything we think of as human history has taken place so is it a piece of bad luck with the chemistry or is it a result of a consequence of a way of approaching the world, a way of seeing and treating everything and everyone, which would always have brought us to such a pass, even if the atmospheric chemistry had been different, even if it turned out that 
how the climate system was capable of absorbing all these emissions without it causing any trouble. And I mean, I'm pretty clear that my way, my answer to the question is the latter. It, it's a way of approaching the world, a way of seeing and treating everything. But it's not just it's not just that. It's that any response to climate change is going to embody one or other of those possible answers to that question. But the question doesn't come into view clearly, so long as we're operating in the domain of knowledge production that is what science is so helpful for. And so what I'm saying is that's only part of a process. And it might be, you know, some people might be familiar with Ian McGilchrist's work on the, the two hemispheres of the brain in The Master and His Emissary. And he talks about how you know, the right hemisphere experiences the world as a whole and as a flow. And then the left hemisphere, which is verbal and analytical and quantitative, and I am, he, he, would, he would give me a, a bit of a slap here for oversimplifying it, but uh, then analyzes the world as something that is broken down or made up of atomized bits and is something like a giant machine. And that can be really, really useful, but then it has to be passed back to the right hemisphere that experiences the world as flow and whole, because otherwise we start acting as if the world is a machine and trying to fix it as if the world is a machine. And that goes horribly wrong. And so part of what I'm saying is with the, the experience of knowing and then the work of knowledge production is that, you know, you, we mustn't get stuck with that kind of arm's length separated detached forms of knowledge that are produced we have to then find a way of bringing that back bringing it back into the conversations with oh, the questions that science cannot answer in order to make sense at a deeper level in order to make judgments i'm saying a lot in the book we cannot simply replace the work of judgment with measurement and calculation and you know, acting as if science tells us what we need to do. That's not how science works. It's not, it's not helpful to scientists to talk as if that is what science does. So that's the dance between knowledge and knowing that's going on in the book. But, and, and I, I always get, a, again, my, my, what I perceive in, at least in the, this culture in the UK, which I'm a part of, and, but again, is that um, we spend very little time on cultivating knowing um, at a individual and collective level. It's it's mainly on putting knowledge into heads and not cultivating knowing in our bodies or in our relationships around us. And you know, it's, it's I always find it interesting. Like you know, we have these kind of Western science breakthroughs that oh, we now you know we now scientifically can prove that nature's good for you. You know, where it mm -hmm. makes you feel good or whatever. But actually, for us to get, for science to give us the, you know, the, the, the green light, we have to go through, obviously, you know, absurd amounts of destruction in order to then, you know, to get us to a point where finally we understand that there is a, a value to something that's beyond measurement, I guess. <laughs> um, and so I, I just, I just found it, I just found it really interesting. And I think that's, Again, and for me, there is this threshold between dancing between what we know and what we don't know, and and how do we um, how do we step into you know knowing the world in in different ways in these times in the ruins. So 
maybe part of what we're talking about is letting go of the desire to know the world from above, from a sort of God's eye perspective, and being able to see and map everything, which, you know, science doesn't have to be done with that mentality, but sometimes science is packaged together with that mentality. Um, but the kind of knowing that we might be looking for that might be helpful is knowing what to do next from where I happen to find myself without needing to have the definitive map of, you know, this great system that one side of the brain wants to map the world as being in order to know what to do next. And I mean, again, going back to Vanessa Machado de Oliveira, she talks about the vital compass uh, and the, you know, learning to navigate by the gut intelligence and the heart intelligence, as well as the head intelligence, noticing what you come alive to and what deadens you and steering by that. And that's a way of being in the world as a participant, maybe again, like crew, but not crew on a mechanical spaceship, crew as in participants within rather than passive, you know, riders on a living process, the full scope of which is beyond all of our knowing, but, you know, we don't have to be paralyzed by the lack of those. We don't have to be paralyzed by the fact that we're not God. We can get on with being participants within a living world. There was um, there was something in the you know you talked in the in the book as well about the pandemic, which was interesting. I mean, I really appreciated your your reflections because I, I still feel like I haven't you know begun to figure out what what happened and uh, and maybe that's a that's a life of work. But um, but um, again, the sort of I was kind of interested on the um, a little bit on the back to the kind of death piece again but you this idea that you know and and, and you refer to is it Ivan Illich who, a, a lot who I was familiar with some of his educational um um uh you know perspectives and but there's this idea that um I think what's what was the what was it what did he say he talked about um um the counterproductivity of institutionalized systems i think was was yeah. the the thing and and particularly looking at things that like health and education and i wondered if we could talk a bit about that because there was that whole piece that what happened you know everything you know lockdowns everything but what what i pulled out of some of that again that was just really interesting to me was this idea of the institutionalizing of death basically that's sort of been going on in some ways in this in this in this modern yes. culture and how that impacted a lot of our our inability maybe to sort of deal with the pandemic in some way. Yes. I mean, it's necessary to go gently with all of this. Yeah. But I had a very particular experience of the pandemic because, you know, as you can probably hear, I grew up in England. Um, I've lived for the last 11 years in Sweden and my partner is Swedish. I have a son who's growing up speaking Swedish and thinking of himself primarily as Swedish. 
So I'm very at home in another country, and it just so happened that the country that has become my home took a very different path in response to the pandemic than most other countries, including the one that was my home for most of the years of my life. And so I lived in a very visceral way the different choices that were being made by governments in response to what the science was able to tell us in those early weeks and months about this new virus and the force with which the choices which governments were making were being presented as simply following the science, even when uh, they led to different policies. And that, I guess, drew me into a reflection on the strangeness of all of the things that were going on during the pandemic, which doesn't lead me to any easy conclusions yeah. or to coming down on one side or the other of the, the kind of COVID culture war, if you like. But one thing that came through to me was, you know, now and then you might have heard somebody quietly say, is all of this, the way that we responded to the pandemic, is it all to do with a, a difficulty we have as cultures in dealing with death? And I think that's an understandable question. And I think that some of the flavour of the media coverage and the discussions and so on within our societies almost certainly is to do with that. But what I began to see is that there's something else that's going on that is at a more structural level of the way that our societies are organised. And this is what took me back to this work that Ivan Illich was doing 50 years ago. These critiques that he was making, sort of analysis of the counterproductivity of industrial society. And the simplest way of saying it is, he said, you know, industrial society has produced a new kind of human that is helpless in a way that people have never been before because we become dependent on professional systems for things that until very recently we needed to be able to do as individuals, households and communities. So until very recently, as individuals, households and communities, humans everywhere had the capacity to build their own homes, to grow their own food and make their own food, to care for their sick and dying, to bury their own dead, and that was the definition of human culture, is that it included our ways of doing that around here. And then in certain parts of the world and spreading out to more and more of the world, within the last handful of generations, we moved to a situation in which, you know, both in terms of our skill and capacity, in terms of the shape of our lives and in terms of the law, it becomes impossible for lay people to do most of those things. They have to be done by accredited, licensed entities and individuals who in many fields have had you know, very expensive training and use very expensive equipment. We get to the place where, you know, in order to die now without passing through a hospital, you have to die very quickly. Whereas for, for almost forever, you know, humans have had the capacity within their homes to care for their elderly and their dying. And we, I mean, we could talk about who it is who does most of that caring. But if we look at the patterns of employment within modern health services, we'll find that it's even more weighted towards you know, women and people of colour and um, low paid people doing the, the caring within the institutional roles. But the point that this leads me to is that so long as that capacity to care for the sick and the dying existed within our homes and households and communities, 
you could have a winter where there was a spike in the number of people, mostly older people, dying because there was a nasty virus passing through. And it could pass through almost unnoticed, except by the priest who was doing more funerals than usual and the grave digger. And, and suddenly, once, once the capacity to handle, you know, age and sickness and death and dying has been transformed in something that re relies on expensive systems of expensively trained people and buildings and devices, then even in the best funded, you know, welfare state and the rest of it, which we don't have anymore in many of our societies, but even then, there's a limit to what excess capacity you can have on hand for periods in which a cold wind blows through and there's an unusual amount of dying going on. And that creates a different kind of crisis. And I think that you know, part of what we experienced in the pandemic was the vulnerability of our societies and their systems to this virus and its consequences. And then if, if the response to that is that we paralyze everything in order to maintain these fragile systems, then I think as other crises come along, as climate change plays out and the rest of it, we're going to see more and more examples of this kind of paralysis because of the fragility of the system. And so what I'm really saying is we need the work in the ruins, which are already around us and ahead of us, includes rebuilding the capacities to meet each other's needs and care for each other as systems fail because otherwise the risk is that we you know we try to sustain failing systems through authoritarian measures and that's not a judgment on the decisions that were taken in the pandemic because i think they were very difficult decisions and i'm not clear that there were obvious better paths that could have been taken or that the Swedish approach would have worked in lots of other countries. But it is an invitation to think about how we avoid structuring our societies in ways that create those scenarios. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And, and for me, again, I'm, I'm the same, like how, you know, it's one thing to be able to reflect back on, on, on something that has happened um, and, you know, point fingers and all that stuff. But what, for me, what's been missing and which feels slightly insane considering what we're is why why aren't we opening that up as an exploration in our in our cultures like what 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 did you know but not from not just like let's blame politicians or you know it's like how was that experience for everyone and mm. what did we learn and it's almost that point what would we what endings could we make from that and what would we hold on to do you know what i mean because because so much and i one thing i got in the book as well from you is it exactly like in our sort of mod, you know, in these, in modernity, in our modern cultures, you know, the death fueled economy, like the mm. fact that so much destruction uh, and death sits underneath a way of life that we perceive to be, many of us perceive to be normal on, and desirable. And, you know, and obviously, you know, there are, and that's a minority of us that experience that, that view of the world. But there's something through that structure we're all we're losing our abilities as as people as collectives as communities to actually be able to 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 cope to deal with a lot of this stuff and in dealing with that stuff is a lot of love and connection and there's you know there's possibility right. in all of that and it's not what why do we want to not be involved in that i guess is the question that i'm often sort of pondering 
And I see, you know, as things get harder, because, you know, times are hard for lots of people around us. And, you know, I travel backwards and forwards every so often between Sweden, where I live, and England, where I grew up. And I I see that things are a lot harder in England, um, though the direction of travel is the same in both countries. I also see people improvising out of necessity responses to the failure of systems which are no longer managing to do the things that they're still officially, legally bound to do in terms of providing care. And you know, within that, if we get it right, there are, are possibilities for meaning there are possibilities for care in the deep meaning of that language that are actually not often there within the institutional provision of the systems that are failing and that one way or another will continue to fail in the kind of world we're headed into. I was talking to somebody at an organisation that was describing the sort of challenge where they have people who are drawn to the space that they are uh, hosting who are drawn there from relatively privileged positions like you and me drawn by a hunger for meaning and they said and and that's that's real and great and it matters and that space also exists because in the community where it is there are people who are just hungry and to me that's a question that's come to the fore in the conversations I've had as I've been traveling around Britain in the last couple of weeks is how do we build solidarity and work alongside each other and help each other and care for each other between the people who are hungry for meaning and the people who are just hungry. Um, but, you know, that's kind of, that is ruins work and there is, you know, there is capacity for meaning within that if we get it right we're also going to have to you know in the sense of that image of the old big tree that in its dying releases the resources we're gonna to have to release a lot of the resources that are being held within the big old trees of modernity in order to help support these things that are being built from the grassroots but i don't think they're going to look like either the state or market forms of provision that have dominated the societies that we were born into listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with my dad, Dan Burgess. Yeah, because I, 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 I often see this, um, you know, the, 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 there's the grassroots, there's the communities, there's the work that's happening from the bottom up as, there's, as there always is and always has been. But, you know, it's for many people and and for those that may be of us who've you know been more in the privilege and the middle class this is this is becoming reality to more and more and more and more people and that's what's but i think there's this there's always a sense i see it with organizations that i've worked with in the past that there is this there's a there's going to require this new entangled hybrid of you know of 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 you know coming top to bottom coming together and, and reimagining kind of what even it is to be an organization in this time or, or you know, who it is you're, you're, you're serving. So I always think like, you know, the book, the invitation to work in the ruins is very interesting because often 
we see at least my perception is we the, this kind of thinking or is always seen as on the edge on the edges but what we're what we're seeing is that this is coming <laughs> i mean it's happening now yeah um and you talk in the book about these sort of two paths mm. um which i wondered whether you could just share a little bit on that for for folks yeah i mean the book was almost called why i'm no longer talking to people about climate change and there are various good reasons why that didn't end up being the title but the the sense in which i'm serious about that is that at a certain point you know, kind of midway through the pandemic years i began to realize that this language of taking climate change seriously could point to such radically different things now that it was in danger of obscuring the choices that lie ahead of us and you know the forces of power the forces of capital whatever language we want to use to describe it are very much aligned with one of those paths which i call the big path and you know that is the project of attempting to secure the extension of existing trajectories of progress growth development um in a world where the climate is changing through more and more desperate measures and we see the geoengineering plans we see the gunboats being deployed to keep out people from other parts of the world who are being displaced by changing patterns of rain and heat that to me is a is a dystopian project um though it may be pursued with good intentions by some of the people who are pursuing it and what i say is you know the the small path which isn't a single path it's a kind of branching set of pathways um is what happens when you give up on that but don't give up on there being more to come don't give up on there being lives worth living and stories worth telling and worlds worth contributing to the building of and so that is people building resilience and capacity from below on the whole though including strange solidarities and connections between the inside and outside of existing institutions and strange shaped collaborations to try and catch each other as we fall and to try and you know open each other's eyes to the fact that we don't have to try and secure those existing trajectories in order for there to be a world worth having well worth living for and being part of in the in the time to come so that's yeah th those are the kind of invitations that i'm making in the book to to this thing that i sometimes talk about in terms of the small path and um your if we could we could like to speak a bit to your school the school the, the home school and you know there's i think you call it um regrowing living cultures or a living culture yeah um and it, it, there's a there was a there was a, f a a frame on your site which i love which was cultivating the courage it takes to come alive in times like these um could you speak a bit to the this project yeah because it feels like that's that's on that on that meandering uh branching other paths definitely it's it's our small pocket of trying to to create a place um where we can share what we're learning about 
the work of regrowing a living culture and we always emphasize it that there is a there is a work in this and you know what does it mean to say regrowing a living culture it, it implies something about the state of the culture or what passes for a culture that we've been born into that despite all of the charts that can show us from certain angles that we've never had it better there is also a sense that there is something dead or dying or morbid about the the way of being human together the culture in the sense that anthropologists speak of culture that has dominated around here lately it has been a death-fueled culture and so uh, without pretending that we have all of the answers we're trying to make space for conversations and collaborations um, that um, that involve practicing, maybe rehearsing for what is going to be called for, maybe sharing stories and ideas that um, help us get oriented to and help us adjust our eyes to um, the kind of um, the dark so that we begin to make out the patterns within it rather than mistaking it for just a flat, empty, blank darkness ahead. Um, and it, we always say it's a school that, you know, Anna and I, my partner and I, we say it's a, a school that starts from the conversations that we bring together around our kitchen table. And it's important that it's the kitchen table. It's important that it's in the room where the food gets made and the washing up gets done. And out of those conversations and out of practices of hospitality and conviviality and gathering and you know using skills together and looking out for the needs of those around us in our communities that i think is where we begin to build not the kind of bold heroic movements that made sense for a while during the high era of modernity and that built good things within those societies as they were at that time. What's called for now is something smaller, humbler, but can be spread out so much that it can be, you know, being spread and shared and ad adopted and adapted in different places without there being you know, a centralised plan for it out of which we create the conditions for making good ruins and for, um, for, yeah, worlds worth living for in the times to come. So the school is, is our little place from which to bring together some of those conversations and practice some of that with our neighbours and with people who travel from further afield to be guests and collaborators. Yeah, so it's... Um it's something like you know we 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 use the metaphor becoming becoming crew in in uh, coming off the podcast and and these learning experiences we've been we've been just playing with really the last couple of years and 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 convening people around and and we we talk a little bit about you know thresholds and and sort of portals into sort of new ways of new ways of of being and uh, and it's an invitation always to sort of experiment with with, with things it, and be vulnerable with with our sort of not knowing because that feels like part of this you know allowing us you know giving us all permission just to let go and to not to feel like we have to we have to know and I think you talked about again in the the, the problems problems versus predicaments in the book and that's I think that's an interesting thing of like shifting from the sort of solving fixing mindset to the kind of like living with complexity and you know what i mean that that that's the reality that we're living with well 
Yeah, this is a, a distinction that comes from an American writer called John Michael Greer, and he says, you know, a problem is something that has a solution. If it doesn't have a solution, it's not a problem. It's a predicament. And part of where I've got to with that is problems, when things are framed as problems, it invites a technocratic solution. It invites getting the right group of experts to find the right response. When something, when we recognize that something might not be a problem, that it might be a predicament, we can't fix it and make everything as it was before, can't manage it and bring it under control, it's changed the conditions under which we're living and we have to respond to that one way or the other, but there isn't a, a right answer that fixes it and makes it go away. Well, maybe that makes room for a democratic response rather than a technocratic expert response. And maybe that's part of what's called for in the face of of what lies ahead yeah and i think it's making me think another f phrase you use like emergency democracy i think that idea of like what would that look like if, if, yeah. if we were opening up in that in in that way um just i'm conscious of time and we've got to get you back on your tour train <laughs> off the spaceship um but this so i guess i was just thinking for listeners we're often say we play with this idea of you know what is it what who will we become you know what what is what is your what is our role in 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 these times and i just wondered you know with this idea of you know which you speak of finding our place and creating good ruins and are there any invitations that you might suggest or offer to our listeners in terms of stepping into this and uh, things that they might consider or an experiment they might um explore to sort of start to move into this this kind of mode of 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 working in the ruins so at the end of the book i have an unfinished list of the kinds of tasks that might make sense in a time of endings and there's four so far on the list and it, it goes you can work to salvage the good that we can have a chance of taking with us from the world that is ending. You can work to mourn the good things that we, it looks like we will have to leave behind. And part of the work of mourning is to tell the stories because those stories can come with us and they might turn out to be seeds in worlds that we can't imagine yet. The third kind of work is a work of discernment. It's noticing the things that were never as good as we told each other they were. The shadow sides of the ways that we've been living, both for all of the people who we don't meet very often, but who are paying the cost of our ways of living. And also even for those of us who are beneficiaries of it, how much loneliness and isolation and addiction and the rest of it has been generated by the ways we've been living around here lately. And the chance we're being given to notice that and to step away from some of those habits and ways of being and doing things. And then the fourth one is to look for the dropped threads the places where there's something from earlier in the story, something that we've been told is old-fashioned, obsolete, inefficient, we don't need it anymore, everyone's forgotten how to do it, that's actually surviving at the edges or under the radar and that has a chance of making all the difference in the times to come. And none of us are going to be trying to do all of those tasks at once. And we're going to answer those questions of each of those four things differently, depending on where we are and what we can see. We don't have to agree and come up with a shared plan. We just have to find people 
to be alongside and collaborate with responding to the work that needs to be done from where we are starting and I hope that a map like that can help us find places that are worth paying attention to and giving giving time to and and noticing where within that map we come alive and stepping into that beautiful thank you that was yeah thank you Can you remind me of that um, Wendell Berry quote and his Spaceship Earth sort of riff? There is a line from Wendell Berry and he says something like, the only manual for Spaceship Earth that could ever exist or is ever needed is not a big book written by a committee. It's 10,000 living cultures in place all across the Earth. And that's the invitation to step up and be crew, is not to, not to get together a committee and write the manual, not to think that the earth is the kind of thing that needs a manual and needs to be known and mapped in that way, but to find a way of participating in the regeneration of living culture where you find yourself starting with the people around you. Beautiful, thank you for that. Dougal, thank you so much for this book and thank you for your time and wishing you um, lots of vibes for the, for the last few dates and stuff. And yeah, go well. Thank you. Thank you. If you've appreciated listening to this podcast, would you consider sharing it with a friend or leaving us a rating or review via your podcast provider? It helps more people to find us and we'd be most grateful. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dougald. Um, There is so much in his book to speak to uh, and we just scratched the surface, to be honest, in that conversation. So do get yourself a copy of it, Work in the Ruins. Um, One of the things you might be asking is, where are the beginnings if we're in a time of endings? What I see beginnings happening all over our spaceship Earth, and I try to bring some of them into this podcast, but they uh, they are always close to the ground, often in crews, small groups of people and communities of practice, always working with massive constraints and therefore always highly creative, imagining what could be and getting on with it with kindness, compassion, love at the centre. But there's no easy signposting here. And this is no linear journey that we're on. There's much unlearning to be done. And what if we're being called to work with both endings and beginnings at the same time? I'm very interested in how we might become the stories of the future we dream of. How do we embody the stories we seek, not just speak of them, but become them through participation and co-creation? How do we move into relationship with the mystery of life itself? How do we look for stories in the landscapes around us? How might we return to myth, an ancient story, for clues and guidance and for remembering, imagining and remixing in these times? 
And I've been thinking a little bit in the last week about this frame at work in the ruins. And it struck me how our more than human family, the natural living world, have also been at work in the ruins for a long, long time as species after species becomes extinct. Their homes, places and habitats polluted and destroyed through the relentless story of modernity, of progress and productivity. And yet the more than human world continues to evolve and adapt. And it reminded me again of where we might want to turn our attention to, to look, to listen and to learn from the more than human, as well as the marginalised, oppressed and indigenous uh, in how to live well in better relationship with ourselves, with each other and with our more than human family and begin to do the slow, messy and attentive work of creating life-sustaining cultures and communities. So with that, I'm off to the woods. Uh, Thanks for listening. Do give us a share or a review if this speaks to you. That'd be marvellous. Check out our Unlearning Adventures for Navigating Mysterious Times at becomingcrew.com. You could sign up to our irregular newsletter and our writing at uh, becomingcrew.substack.com. And yeah, please just get in touch if you've got questions that are coming up for you. Uh, Might be arising. We'd love to hear from you. Um, So I'm going to play out with the track. Uh, It's from an old friend, Will Flisk. Uh, Will is a DJ and producer. Uh, I met him in London about 25 years ago now, I think. Um, He lives now in North Devon in the UK. He's a prolific producer. You'll find him on SoundCloud and Bandcamp. Um, I'm going to play a track called 7-7. It's on a new EP. It's a four-track EP called Siberia. Uh, which was out, released on Elephant Gate Music. Um, It says uh, the EP is inspired by tribal music and culture and a new climate agenda. And Will asks the question, does tribe intelligence give us the ability to achieve common goals as a collective? Until next time, peace and out. This podcast is created in service to life for you. It takes time, funds and energy to make. If you'd like to contribute to the running costs, you can donate the price of a cuppa or a pint. Find the link on our website. This podcast wouldn't exist without the following crew. Charlie Shred, Audio Jedi. Seaman Home Burgess, Engine Room. Willow Burgess, Jingles. Seven, seven. Connecting you.